So there's this idea that you that, that I hear often, and um, you know, you might have heard it the same. You, you might even think it yourself. I'm not sure, but it's this idea that basically says that all religions uh, oppress women, or all religions are um, just antithetical to women, that whenever you see religion, automatically what you're going to see is, is women being oppressed. And, and it's, an, it's an old idea. It's, it's been around for as long as I've been alive, certainly. And you know, I, I see it keep turning up um, in different places. So for this week and next week, I just want to challenge that idea, at least as it pertains to Christianity. I mean, I can't speak for all religions because I don't know about all religions. Uh, and that's, I guess, one of the silly things about the comment is that it just assumes that all religions are exactly the same and that we can just apply this one sweeping categorizing statement about all of them. And that's all we need to know about it. If you talk about religion, then automatically women are being oppressed. So again, I, I can't speak to anything outside of my own faith. And so I want to speak to Christianity and actually make the case that the total opposite is true. Um, when you look at someone like Paul, and again, Paul tends to be one of the primary targets of this sort of idea because Paul makes statements that to us in a very 21st century progressive world seem to be somewhat um, well, anti-woman or, or misogynistic. And and I've sort of looked at these in other episodes of the podcast where it's quite clear that what Paul is saying there is really just not that at all. Um, and I want to sort of look at that again uh, in more depth this week and, and next week as well as to just how much of a feminist Paul actually was. Um, now, when I say a feminist, what I'm talking about is the idea of women being treated absolutely equally to men in all circumstances, and particularly in the case of marriage and, and sexuality, that what Paul wants for the women in his churches is to be treated exactly the same way as their husbands, that even in the Christian community, now Paul can't speak to society, Paul doesn't have any authority in Roman society whatsoever, there's just not his place to be able to speak to that, but he can speak to his own Christian communities. And what we find in those communities is women being elevated in every way, shape, and form into equal status to the other men and especially to their husbands. They're, they, they're expected to be treated the same way and to have the same rights and have the same authorities that the men do. And again, I've covered this in a lot of other episodes in this podcast, and so I'd, I'd encourage you to go and have a listen to some of those. Now, look, the reality is, is that if you don't like Paul, then nothing I'm going to say here is going to convince you otherwise. Paul, if, if Paul is this misogynist that you think that he is, I don't think I'm going to change that. Now, I might, if, you, if you're willing to grant me that Paul is a first century thinker and not a 21st century progressive, then you, and you're willing to hear him from that perspective, then you might find what I'm going to say interesting. If not, you're just, this just isn't the episode for you. Um, you're just not going to, this is probably just going to aggravate you more than anything else. But if, you, if you're willing to give Paul the benefit of the doubt that maybe perhaps he is a first century person and he's thinking very, very differently, very radically differently to everybody in his society, then you might see him in a different light. And that's what I want to present um, is just something of a, of a different reading of Paul, maybe something different to the stereotypical ideas that you're going to hear in, again, statements like all religion is against women. 
So where I want to start this week, I was reading a great book through the week by Rodney Stark, and it's a book called The Rise of Christianity. Now, it's an older book, and I'm late to the party with so many of these things, um, but it's he was talking about what were some of the factors that explain why Christianity succeeded in the first few centuries of, ex- of his existence. You know, basically, if you look at the beginning of Christianity in about the year 40, you've got about 100, we see about 120 followers. By the end of the first, maybe by about the year 40, you've got maybe 1,000 followers. Um, by the end of the first century, maybe 7,800 thereabouts. But by the time you get to the middle of the fourth century, Christianity is around about 6 million people, which is about 10% of the Roman Empire. Now, that's absolutely extraordinary growth. But actually, when you put it against the the growth patterns of um, any sort of charismatic movement, and he uses the modern Mormon church as sort of a, a comparative tool, what you notice is that actually it's very fitting with what you would expect from an evangelistic type of movement like Christianity. And so what he calculates is that Christianity grew at a rate of about 40% per decade, decade on decade for that first, say, 300 years. And so that growth rate of maybe 120 at its starting point to about 6 million in the fourth century is about what we would expect. And that's about where the growth tends to cap, because if it kept growing at that rate, by the end of the fourth century, there would have been more Christians than there were people in the Roman Empire. So it does tend to plateau at some stage. But what he was trying to explain was what are some of the sociological factors that caused the growth of the church? And one of them he put down to was its was its um, or the role of women in the church. The fact that women played such a pivotal role and that the way they were treated in the church was so different to everywhere else in the Greek and Roman societies that the reality was, was that the church actually attracted more women than men. Uh, so just a couple of things that he sort of pointed out, and I, again, I'm just giving him all the credit here because I, I, I don't want to say that any of this was any of my great insight. One of the points that he makes is that when you look at societies where men outnumber women, women are always going to be oppressed. And the reason for that is because they're seen as scarce goods. Um, They're just, they're a rare commodity that have to be basically constrained. We can't lose the very little that we have. And so we have to repress it to make sure that there's enough of it to go around. Uh, whereas if you, the opposite is true, that in societies where women outnumber men, the men will tend to be the dominant ones. The men will be the ones that tend to be oppressed. And so it's it's just really relates primarily to who is the more populous of the two within the society. Now, when you look at the Roman Empire, what you find is that in Rome itself, the Number the 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 ratio of women to men was about or men to women was about 130 to 100. So for about every 130 men in the city of Rome, there was about sorry 130 men in Rome. There was about 100 women. Now, if you look broadly across the Roman Empire, that ratio expands to about 140 men to about 100 women. So for every 140 men, you're going to have 100 women, which means that there was a scarcity of women. There was just less women than there were men, and so this is one of the um, one of the reasons for 
the way in which women were oppressed. Now, there, this plays out in a number of different ways. If you look at both classical uh, Rome and as well as Athens, what you find is that women just simply can't hold public office. Now, I've looked at this in some previous episodes, but women just can't hold public office. Only the men get to have those offices. And part of the reason for that was that women just don't get educated. Women are seen only for the purposes of childbearing. And so for that reason, they are at home having children because we need to make children. And that is naturally going to restrict their ability to have any sort of public roles. But they're also seen as not capable of holding those roles. Uh, As we've seen in previous episodes, the fact that a woman is... um, is is less than a man. The fact that the man is always going to be the sexually dominant one and the woman is always the passive one, she is, by virtue of that, an inferior person. So just by virtue of that, can't hold any sort of public offices. What you find in, in Athens and Rome is also that women are con- always under the authority of a man, beginning with their father, Uh, And then when the father dies, it's either going to be their husband or their brother, but they always have to be under the legal authority of a man. That's just just part of the legal structure. Uh, And so a woman is always answerable to an immediate relative in her life, an immediate male relative. And we've also seen in the last couple of weeks the absolute sexual double standard. There's just what men could do compared to what women could do. And again, just just have a look at the the last couple of episodes of this podcast, how women were seen and and the the absolute double standard that was applied. But there were other factors as well that led to the the disproportionate number of... Those factors in themselves aren't explanations for why there's less women than men. The reason why there was less women than men primarily stems to the fact that when a baby is born, a a family will make the first decision as to whether or not we keep the baby. And these often will be financial reasons. Can we afford to keep all the children? Uh, If we have this baby, can we afford to keep it? And if we can't, then we're going to have to get rid of it. Now, what that means is that a lot of babies are going to be exposed. They're going to be different ways you can execute them. Um, Sometimes you could just simply leave them out on the trash. Other times you can throw them down a drain and they've found, they've excavated drains just just full of baby skeletons. Um, You might cut the umbilical cord and just let the baby bleed out. There's, There's different ways that you can do it. But this generally applies only to baby girls. Baby girls are always understood to be a future expense. And so the majority of babies that will be exposed will be women. So automatically from birth, you're going to have an immediate shortage of women because only the, all of the baby boys are going to be kept, but women, the baby girls tend not to be. In fact, um, one of the things that he notes in this book is that they, they did a sort of a collection of uh, inscriptions from Delphi. They, get, they gathered up all these inscriptions from the city of Delphi, and they were able to sort of calculate from these inscriptions uh, family structures. And so they've been able to identify 600 different families from these inscriptions that they were, um, that they gathered up. And what they noted was that of 600 families, only six of them raised more than one, more than one girl. Uh, only six had a second or a third daughter. Every other family had one or less. Again, just more indication of the fact that women are just simply not seen as, or they're seen as an expense. They're not seen as nearly as important to keep in that society as a man was. 
So that's one of the key reasons why we have less women. But the second reason is that women die in abortion. Now, abortions were fairly common. Uh, and some of the reasons why a woman would have an abortion would be that she's fallen pregnant to another man and she doesn't want her husband to find out. And so she tries to abort the baby because if it gets out that she's an adulteress, she's going to be exiled. Her life is going to be an absolute misery. Uh, and so she wants to abort this baby. Uh, other reasons are that the husband, and very often, in fact, the husband would just insist that she has the abortion. Uh, remembering that in this society, he owns her, he controls her body. Whatever happens to her body is under his jurisdiction. And so if he decides that he wants her to have an abortion, then that's it. That's just how it is. Now, you can imagine that first century medical procedures are not very good. Um, in fact, they're terrible. And the way that they do abortions, now there was different ways to do it, but one of the more common ways was that she would just simply drink poison. Now, the idea was you don't drink enough poison to kill yourself, but only enough to drink the to, to kill the fetus. But how much is that? There's no way of calculating that. You don't know how efficacy, you don't know the efficacy of the poison. You don't know how to calculate that in relation to your body size or to the, um, there's just no way of knowing that. And so more often than not, the poison would kill her as well. Now, other ways, and there's, we find descriptions in our sources for these of um, medical procedures where the woman's would literally be opened up and the baby would be located and then the baby would be um, basically cut up. It would just be just literally chopped up and then a hook would be inserted in there and the baby would just be pulled out. Now, this is horrible. I'm, I'm, as I'm saying this, I'm conscious of the fact that this is really disturbing stuff to think about, but this was life for a woman. This is what her society um, expected for her. And now you can imagine that not many women are going to survive that procedure. That's not something she's going to come out of. And even if she manages to survive the procedure by some miracle, uh, the germs are going to get her. Right, there's that you're inevitably going to get an infection. You've got some. I mean, just you can imagine what a procedure like that is going to do be like without penicillin. So women are dying at birth, or they're dying through abortion, or they're dying even in childbirth, which is true up until only very recently in human history. So there's so many different ways, additional ways that women are dying. What it inevitably leads to is a society that is that men vastly outnumber the women. What's so interesting, though, is that when we turn to Christianity and to the Christian communities, we actually find the complete opposite. We actually find that in the Christian communities, women vastly outnumber the men. The question is, why? And so what he estimates in this book is that by about the, the end of the first century, Women, the, the 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 number of women in the church is about sixty four percent. So sixty four percent of the church population are, are women, compared to the thirty six of men. Now, why is that? Now, again, considering that in light of the fact that we've got a society where one hundred and forty, the ratio of men to women is one hundred and forty to one hundred. So then you come to the church and that completely flips. We've now got 64% uh, women to men. Again, why? And what was even more, what we, is even more remarkable from our sources is that we noticed that um, 
the majority of the primary conversions. So there's primary and secondary conversions. There's the primary conversion when somebody from a, a group or a network converts to converts to this Christianity, comes over to this other group. So they're sort of the first of their group to come over to this. Then there's secondary conversions, which is the primary convert brings over the a secondary convert. And so one of the common things that we find is that the the majority of the primary converts are women and that the number the majority of secondary converts are actually their husbands. So the first converts tend to be women and then they're bringing their husbands along to be part of this church, which again is really just remarkable, but what that tells us is that there was something attractive about the church. Now, if if you're going to make the case that Christianity, let's just use Christianity, forget about all religions, but that Christianity is uh, against women or is opposed to women. Why were so many women going to it voluntarily? You would think that if it was was oppressive to women, they would have to be dragged to it kicking and screaming, that their husbands would be looking at Christianity as this great beacon of hope for masculinity and that they can use their Christianity to further repress their wives. Like if, if Christianity was that, then you would... You would imagine that it was the primary converts would be the husbands dragging their then dragging their wives along. Why is it the opposite? What was it about the church that attracts women as opposed to the men? Some, you have to explain that. And if it is oppressive, then that's just counterintuitive to the actual facts on the ground. So what was it about this that these actual women coming to this early church, what was it about it that they saw that was so good? Well, for, the, for a start, more women survive in the church. Simply put, the church just condemns uh, infanticide, so the killing of babies, and it condemns abortion. Now, those two things are primary killers of women. So you eliminate those two things, and all of a sudden, more women stay alive. So in this community, more women live by virtue of the fact that their lives are seen as valuable. In the Greco-Roman world, a, woman, a woman's life is not seen as valuable other than her ability to bear children. In the church, her life is seen as of equal value to a man's. And so irrespective of if it's a baby girl or a baby boy, they're both equally valuable in God's sight. And so both are be kept, to be kept alive because anything else is murder. So that's number one. But secondly, so so is the, the view of abortion. So you just simply don't have abortions in the early church. They're, they're condemned. And so for that reason, number one, you know, the baby that was going to be aborted gets to survive. But also the woman who would probably die in the abortion is also kept alive. So number one, a woman's life is valuable in the church as opposed to everywhere else in her society. And so naturally that's going to lead to at least a, um, an e- equilibrium in the population of men to women. But there's more to the fact that women were attracted. It wasn't just that the baby Christians stayed alive and that the Christian mothers stayed alive, but they attracted more women than men. So why was that? Well, there was a couple of reasons. Well, several actually. For a start, the church got rid of this sexual double standard that we find in an ancient marriage. Whereas the husband was free to do whatever he wants sexually and the wife was completely uh, repressed in the sense that she could only ever have sex with her husband, the church said, no, 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 it's equal for both of you. Sex is to be confined to the marriage. That's for the woman. Well, she was already doing that, but for the man as well. 
And so the fact that he now has to be uh, constrained to to the marriage, well, what that results in is a situation where women are treated equally, where their wives are treated with the same respect as their husbands. And so in that sense, what a a wife in the Christian context is going to, um, well, again, be treated equally, but also what it means is that she she knows that in that context, her husband's not out sleeping around, that he's he's focusing on her. Now, as we're going to see later on in this episode, what that also means in the Christian church is that the way in which a husband is to treat his wife sexually is to be fair and equal and, and to treat her with the utmost respect and dignity. And so that's also a significant factor that we're going to find there. But simply put, the church just got rid of the double standard. And so a husband and a wife were equal in marriage. Another reason is that Christian widows weren't forced to remarry. Uh, whereas in the Roman world, if you're widowed, you you have to legally be remarried. You have to find another husband. Whereas in the church, they would say, well, look, that might lead to you marrying a non-Christian, uh, or maybe it's just, it's not ideal for you to be remarried. So, is there a way that we can support you? They would look for ways in which to um, to support the wife, to to be able to provide for her so that she doesn't have to be remarried, so that she can actually um, remain a part and remain an active participant within the church. Um, so the fact that she has autonomy, the fact that she has some say, rather than a father or a brother saying to you, well, I found you another husband, you need to go and marry this guy instead, the church is saying, well, hey, you know what? Um, maybe just you can think for yourself. Maybe you can have autonomy over the, what the, re- the rest of the direction of your life looks like. And so that another key reason is that the fact that women just have some autonomy within uh, over their lives. Another change is that what you find in the church is that women tend to marry older. As time goes on, we, you find that women are able to marry a little bit older. In fact, there's almost an encouragement towards that. Now, the fact was that in in Roman law, the legal age for a girl to be married was the age of 12. And what we would sometimes find in our sources is that women are married often as, girls are married often as young as 11. And these are sexual marriages. I mean, basically the minute a girl goes through puberty, she's going to be sexually active. And this is a standard thing that we're going to find. But what we see in the church is a shift away from this, where girls are going are gradually being able to be married at an older age because they're recognizing that it's just too young. That's just, that's not right for a girl to be married at such a young age. And so within a short time, what you find is statistically, a pagan girl was three times more likely than a Christian girl to be married before the age of 13. So using 13 as sort of the benchmark, three times more non-Christian girls are going to be married as opposed to their Christian counterparts. And as the the ages go up, we find increasingly that more and more Christian girls are being married at an older age. So these are just a couple of the reasons that um, would attract women to this community. The fact that they're treated as equals, the fact that they're they're given autonomy, the fact that um, they're, they're given dignity 
I mean, that in and of itself is going to attract women to these communities and particularly mothers who've got daughters would very likely want their girls to be raised in that sort of community as opposed to the alternative, which is everything we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. So where does this start from? Where, where does this, this early church, where do these ideas come from? What, what lays at the foundation of the way these communities value women? Well, it begins with Paul. And so I come back to the point I made at the start. Paul was a feminist. He was a radical feminist. By, his, by the standards of his day, he was a radical and he absolutely was a feminist in the sense that he wanted women to be treated exactly the same way as the men and to have the same opportunities as the men. So by that definition of a feminist, that is absolutely who Paul was. And why I say he's a radical is because by comparison to all of the other men, including the Jewish men and that he used to you know, hang out with as a Pharisee, Paul was an absolute radical. He was a revolutionary in the way that he was thinking. And this is what he's trying to implement into his communities. This is the sort of standards that he's trying to set in his communities. Now, again, we talked about this last week, but you've got to remember that Paul isn't trying to change society. Okay, Paul, he, we want him to be this social justice activist. That's not who Paul is. He's not. It's not the sort of society that tolerates any sort of progressive activism, right? It's a, it's a society that crucifies those people. They literally get put up on crosses. So you can't be that person, right? Those people die very painfully, very quickly. So what Paul has to do is, and, 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 and let's not forget that in Paul's thinking, uh, Jesus is coming back tomorrow, right? Jesus is coming back tomorrow. We don't have the time to change this whole world what we can do is just get as many people as we can saved so that when the new heaven and the new earth comes, we're all going to live in this utopia and there's just going to be more of us there. It's it's really like the, the Titanic is sinking and we're rearranging the deck chairs or we're trying to overthrow the class system that is at work on the Titanic. It's it's stupid. It's just, no, no, the ship is going to sink. Everyone's going to die. We need to rescue as many people as we can. That's Paul's thinking. He's, he's, in a, he's in a hurry. So he's not trying to change the Roman world. And as far as anyone in that time is concerned, the world doesn't change. That's the point. The world is not meant to change. This is the whole Greek thinking. The world has always been the way it is and always will be for all of eternity. This world does not change. That's the point. And so in Paul's thinking, in Paul's eschatology, Jesus is coming. He's going to renew this whole world, start the whole thing over again in this new way. Our job is to get as many people into that new world as is possible. So that's Paul, what Paul's trying to do. He's not trying to change the society. He's trying to get people saved. But in doing that, he's, he is creating communities that are an outworking of what this new world is going to be. So this world is going to be renewed into this new image. Well, what we can show people is what that world could will be like. So let's establish mini communities that begin to bear the fruits of what the perfection will be. So it's it's if you if you want to get a sense of what eternity will be like in Christ, come to one of these communities and you're going to see a taste of it. Now, it's not perfect. Of course it's not, because it's still a product of the Roman Empire. It's still working within the constraints of the Roman Empire. But within those small communities, we can begin to exercise a new way of thinking, a new way of seeing other people, 
don't just see them as a servant or as somebody lesser than you, but rather see them as a brother. In fact, see them as somebody who's even maybe better than you. Maybe see them as somebody that you can serve rather than somebody who's going to serve you. See them in a different way. And from that perspective, treat them in a different way. So maybe we can just give you a taste of what things will look like. And so what Paul's trying to do, particularly in the context of a family, he wants the families in his churches to start to reflect these values, these Christ-like values. But he can't change the women. He can't say to these women, hey, you know, you're free in Christ now or you're equal in Christ, so you need to go and tell your husband that he needs to toe the line, he needs to treat you with respect, you need to stand up women and fight for your rights. He can't do that. Of course he's not going to do that because what that's going to do is get the wife beaten up. If a wife goes home to her husband and says, hey, you know, I'm the same as you are, I'm equal in Christ, and so therefore you'd, no, no, she'll be beaten before she finishes that sentence. That's reality. That is just not ever, ever going to happen. Paul can't, it would be dangerous for Paul to insist on women doing that. That's just, that's never going to happen, especially as we've seen in the cases where the husband is not a Christian. The very last thing he wants to do is to have a Christian wife go home to a non-Christian husband who's already on edge because his wife is doing this Christian thing rather than worshiping the family gods. Already, he's bordering on a shameful husband for allowing that to happen in the first place. For her to then come home and say, hey, husband, I'm as a Christian, I'm equal to you, so you should treat me as such, that will not end well for her. And that won't end well for the church because what is going to happen is that the ideas or, or the, um, the recognition is going to get around amongst the other men that this church down the road here, this Christian community down the road, is insisting that women can push back against their husbands. What are we going to do about it, fellas? It's not going to end well. So, okay, you can't change the woman. You can't say to her, go and live the way that you should be as a Christian. The only person in this family who has any control, who has any say over the, the tone and the worldview of the family is the husband. That's the only one. And the father. We talked already about the, the, the authority that the father has and the husband has over the whole household. He sets the tone for everything. He's the one you have to change. He's the CEO of the company. You want, you want the company to go in a different direction? There's no point talking to the person who works in the mailroom. You've got to talk to the CEO. He's the one who's going to make the changes. So Paul has to change the way that the man thinks. And the reality was he's the one who did need to change. The reality was is for, Christ, for, for Roman and Greek women, they already effectively were living out a Christian ethic when it comes to sexuality, that they could only have sex with their spouse, and that's it. They already were doing that. The person that needs to change here is the husband. He's the one who needs to conform his behavior to this new Christian way of life. And in doing that, it's automatically going to elevate his wife because he's bringing himself down to her expectation, but also elevating her and bringing her up as an equal. So you don't have to change the situation of a woman by, ch- by telling her to, to make the change. Just change the husband. You change the tone for him and automatically she is elevated as a result. And so this is exactly what Paul does. When Paul is dealing with these issues, he's dealing straight with the men. You change the man, you change the family. You change the whole household. It's as simple as that. All right, so over this week and next week, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. And there's a long chapter in 
chapter seven that deals with various aspects of marriage and sexuality and divorce. So I want to just work through that whole chapter. But before we get there, we have to sort of look at the whole context of what is happening in chapter seven, which actually begins back in chapter six. So what Paul begins with is uh, a reframing of their understanding about sexuality. And, and, and what that leads him in his thinking towards is some other issues that are going on in the marriage. So you have to take all of this together, all of this works together as a whole. Uh, and so when we look at chapter six, what Paul is having to do is to deal with um, a, a practice amongst some of the men, and specifically we would say the Gentile men in the community, who are still engaging with prostitutes. Now, we'll explain why that is in a moment, but that's what the, the core of the issue is. They're, they're going out and they're having sex with prostitutes. Now, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, it's very obvious that that's a standard thing that men do. Um, they're, they're having sex with prostitutes in multiple different contexts. And so what these Gentile men are doing is just what every man has been doing since the beginning of time. They're just being normal people. You get this idea that says, oh, the Corinthians were so evil and so immoral and they were a particularly sexually um, disgusting group of people. No, stop, <laughs> stop. No, they weren't. They were just normal first century people. The men in Corinth were just normal first century Greco-Roman men doing what normal first century Greco-Roman Greco men did. That, that was, there was no difference between them and anybody else in that society. So we just let's put that idea out of our minds that these are just standard men of the first century who've now come into this church and who have not maybe realized how serious Paul was when, these, when he was saying, guys, stop doing that. Now, there's another sort of factor in the timeline of Corinthians that we need to take into, take into consideration. Now, we know that Paul was in Corinth between late 49 and to about mid-51. So, those were the years that he was actively working in Corinth. First Corinthians that we have is not written till about the middle of 54. So, a couple of years has actually gone by. And in that time, other teachers have gone into Corinth and have continued on the work. They've established other household house churches. And these are house churches consisting of people who have probably never met Paul. Um, or or they might have heard about him, but probably haven't seen him in the flesh. And so whoever these teachers were, were teaching in what seems to be, and Paul seems to indicate that there are other teachers who aren't quite building the same, um, the, the same house. They're, they're building on a different foundation to what Paul was building. And what we seem to see throughout 1 Corinthians are people who are doing things that Paul's going, why are you doing that? Who told you that that was okay? And that seems to be the case here. They seem to be thinking about sexuality clearly in the way that they used to or have always thought about it, but not the way that Paul thinks about it. And it could probably be because they'd never heard Paul talk about it. So that's probably an explanation for why they're actually doing the thing that they're doing. Um, and so what Paul wants to do is to take his standard Jewish ethic around sexuality, and this is the one thing that Paul carries through from the Old Testament. There are many things like circumcision and kosher, things that he leaves behind. The sexual ethic absolutely comes through into the Christian community um, and just gets reinforced in this, new, uh, in this new Christian group. So Paul wants to impose that now onto these Gentiles whose whole sexual ethic has been everything we've been describing over the last couple of years. Old habits die hard. Um, these guys have been doing this literally since they were teenagers, and they've been taught this that this is the right way to do things from their father. This is this is 
this is what it is to be ethical, is to be sexually active and to be sexually oppressive. That's what it means to be a good man. And now you're being told, no, actually, that makes you a terrible man. You need to stop that and start to think in an entirely different way. That's something that's going to take a bit of time to, if you've even heard that, to process and to actually make that appropriate change. So Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians 6.12. He says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I'll not be mastered by anything. Now, just an interesting point here. I'm reading this from the NIV. And what you notice, if you've got an NIV in front of you, maybe if you're watching the video, you can see this. But you see that there's quotation marks around the, I have the right to do anything. And then you've got this additional, you say. Now, the you say is not there in the Greek. That's been added by these English translators to indicate that Paul is quoting the Corinthians. Now, how do we know that he's quoting the Corinthians? Well, we actually don't. We're sort of, it's our best assumption that he is because this doesn't sound like something Paul would actually say. So what he's probably doing is picking up on something they are saying to justify their behavior and Paul is correcting that idea. Now, you see this in other translations. So in the ESV, for example, you've got the quotation marks, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. What you don't have in the ESV is the you say. So that hasn't been added in by those translators, but they're still picking up on the fact that this is a quote from the Corinthians. But when you look at the New King James Version, there's no quotation marks. So it says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Now take away those quotation marks and what you would see that suggests is that this is actually Paul talking. This is Paul's advice. Now, that's an entirely different thing because that we then read into that Paul's ethic is, I can do whatever the hell I want, but not all things are beneficial. Well, that doesn't sound like Paul. What makes more sense is that this is the Corinthians justifying themselves and Paul correcting it um, with a Christian ethic. So their idea is, I have the right to do anything I want. And Paul says, sure, but not everything is beneficial. You can do whatever you want, sure. I mean, that's, hey, we're free. We can do whatever we want, but not everything is good for you, so it really shouldn't be done. So do the things that are good for you is what Paul would say. And he says, I have the right to do anything, but he says, I'll not be mastered by anything. In other words, you can do whatever you want, but understand that some of the things you do can enslave you. And if you don't want to be enslaved, don't do certain things, right? I'm, I'm free to gamble, but I know for me from years and years ago that if I start to gamble, it will control me. And so I just don't go anywhere near it because although I have the right to do it, and it's very, very easy when you consider how easy gambling is, I won't do it because I won't be mastered by it. And so that's my ethic when it comes to that. So this is the Corinthians justifying their behavior by saying we can do these things. And where this probably stems from is more of a philosophical idea. See, the idea of the philosophical wise man, somebody who is perfectly trained in philosophy, somebody who knows everything, who knows what is right, knows what is wrong, can do everything that he wants to do because even if he does something that is not the best, he knows that it's not the best, but he can do it anyway because he's got self-control that will stop him from being controlled by that thing. So because he, he, he basically has a God mind, he can do whatever he wants, knowing the, the difference between good and bad and all of this. And so these are some, some maybe sophisticated Corinthians who are going, oh, we know it's not the best, but, you know, it's just, it is what it is. And so we, we, we're just going to go ahead and do it. And Paul says, no, no, okay, number one, it's not helpful. Number two, you don't want to be mastered by that thing as well. But then he goes on in verse 13, and it's, it's the same situation. He says, 
you say, or the, the NIV adds the you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So again, it's picking up this quote from the Corinthians, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Now, interestingly, again, if you read the, the ESV, it puts in quotation marks this, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. That's in quotation marks indicating that that's the Corinthians. But then it says next, and God will destroy one and the other, no quotation marks suggesting that that's God's, that's actually Paul's response. Now, so that in the NIV, it's got this is what the Corinthians are saying. Food for the stomach, stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. So what does it matter we do, what we do with the body? Because God's going to destroy it all anyway. In the ESV, that's Paul's response, and the body's not meant for sexual immorality. But then the New King James Version, again, no quotation marks, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them. It's Paul's ethic. Now, again, which is it? Well, it's likely the NIV, which is that this is what the Corinthians are using to justify their behavior. Put simply, I feel hungry, so I eat food. I have a sexual urge, so I outwork it. It's just a bodily impulse. It's just, it's no different to eating food. It's no drinking, no different to drinking water when you're thirsty, going to the toilet. It's just a bodily function. And so viewed in that light, what does it matter how I do it? Because it's just something that I get done with, that I do with the body. And as you say, Paul, it's all going to get done away with at the end of, in the last days. So sex, like food, like everything else will just be burnt away. What does it matter what I do? It's, it's of no consequence um, what, what my ethic is. And so Paul, again, is responding and he's saying, hang on a second. No, no, no. Sexual immorality is a different thing. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but it's meant for the Lord. Now you go, hang on a second, they're talking about food. Why are we talking about food and sexual immorality in the same context? So they're using it as a euphemism. I eat food, I have sex, it's all a bodily function. Paul says, aha, but sexual immorality is a different thing entirely because the body is meant for the Lord. So you need to eat food, of course, you need to drink, but sex is a different thing. He's trying to make that distinction between the two. But why does he go to the sexual immorality straight away? Well, because the context in which they're doing this is at a dinner party. They're not going down necessarily going down to brothels to have sex. They don't need to. They can go to a dinner party. Now, the dinner parties always end in sex. So you go over to your friend's place and you, you do that because you want to network. You want to be seen in these settings. You want to be hanging out with the people who are other elite people in the city. That's a standard practice for anyone in any society. You want to network, you want to socialize. It's part of the way that you establish yourself within a community. But the way you do this in the Roman and the Greek world is you do it at a meal. And the way the meal works is you have uh, food and then you have a drinking party, the symposium, where you drink a lot of alcohol. And amongst that, you have sex. And so one of the host's duties is to provide that sexual outlet, to provide that sexual entertainment, to provide prostitutes. So this is a standard thing. It's just what every party, what every meal is going to end up looking like. And that's what these guys are doing. They're going out to these parties. They're going out and eating and they're having sex with prostitutes because that's just what you do. That's what, what it looks like in this society. 
And so Paul says, no, it's not just sex. It's not just like eating food. It's an entirely different thing. The fact is your body belongs to the Lord. It's there to serve the Lord. And so what you do with it sexually does matter because it is his body now. It's under his control. And these this sexual activity has ramifications. It has important implications for you in your life. So he goes on in verse 14 to remind them of what the bigger picture here is. He says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. You see, what's at the core of their ethic is this plate is what we call a platonic dualism. What the standard idea in the ancient world is, is that the body and the soul are separate things. The only thing that matters is the soul. The body, as Plato describes it, is a prison house for the soul. The body's job is to carry it through this life, but the only thing of any concern is the soul. Because what the Greeks realize is when you die, the body goes back to dust, but the soul lives on. This is why a body goes cold, because the soul is seen to be hot, the, 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 the soul, the, the pneuma in the Greek is the same word for spirit as it is for breath or wind. So when you breathe, your breath is hot. When you die, you stop breathing because your soul, the breath, it evacuates you and you go cold. So the spirit has left you, the body then just rots away. So we can see from seeing a dead body that the soul is the eternal part of us. And so that's the only thing that matters. So what you do with your body is of no consequence. Your sexual organs are no different to your um, to your dietary organs, to, to your stomach, to anything else. It's all flesh that is going to rot away. And so what you do sexually is no different to what you do with your eating. The only thing that matters is the soul. And so this ethic is what Paul is trying to correct. He's saying, no, 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 all of it gets resurrected. The whole body gets resurrected. This is the whole point of chapter Corinthians 15. We'll deal with that on another day. The whole point of your body is that all of it gets resurrected. And so what we do with this body matters. There is consequences to what we do with our physical bodies, especially when it comes to sexuality. And so then now he has to correct them. And he's trying to, again, correct their thinking. He doesn't come in and make demands. He doesn't say, you must stop this and, you know, this, how dare you? No, no, he, he, he has to change their thinking about it. He has to make them see it from a different way. And the way that he frames it would again suggest that they just didn't know this, which is probably, again, stems back to the fact that maybe no one had taught them this before. And so Paul's kind of shocked. He's like, hang on, how do you not know that? That's the basic stuff. And yet, or, or if they did, They've just maybe skipped that Sunday of church. Maybe that's that sermon didn't particularly interest us or, or whatever it might be. So this is in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? So keeping in mind, this is the Roman man whose body is his vessel. He has total authority over it and he uses his body to express his domination. His body is used for him to assert his authority over everybody else around him. Male, female, slave, free, woman, doesn't matter. He's the one who's dominant and his body is used to do that. Paul is saying, don't you recognize that your body actually belongs to Jesus? Now that in and of itself, you just got to let that sink in for a minute. How does a Roman man hear that? Not very well. Again, this comes back to why would men not want to become Christians? Well, this is a pretty good reason why they wouldn't. 
Why would they need to be dragged, kicking and screaming by their wives to come to the church? Well, because when they get there, they have to give this up. So this is going to be all the women in, sitting in this congregation are going, hallelujah, amen. And all the men are going, oh, I don't think I want to be here anymore. This is not good news for the men, right? Paul says, your bodies are not your own. Your bodies belong to Jesus. Now, in this world, bodies do get owned by people. They are called slaves. Paul is saying here, your body is now the slave of Christ. And it's not even an important one. It's just one of many members. You could be a fingernail in in the body of Christ, and you've just got to live with that. This is not good news for the men. And so Paul says, should I take a member of Christ and unite it with a prostitute? The language he's using here is literally the language of, shall I rip off a limb and then unnaturally attach it to another person's body? like some zombie with an arm sticking out of their chest. That's the picture that Paul's describing here because that's what you're doing to Christ's body when you go down to those prostitutes or when you go and go to those dinner parties. Your body is not your own. It belongs to Christ. You are a slave of somebody now. Your body is owned by somebody else. And again, all the women said, hallelujah, that's been our experience since the day we were born. The men are just going, I don't think I want to be here. He goes on in verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So so there was an, an understanding in both the Jewish and the Greek world that when a when you consummate a marriage, you do it sexually, and that's what actually unites the marriage. There's no formal marriage ceremonies that we have that we find in the ancient world. It's, it, it is the act of sex. That's what actually binds the two together, and it's the commitment that each other makes to one another. So there is something of a recognition that sex has a binding property, but more in the sense that that's what formally marries you. That's what sort of seals the, the seals the deal, seals the commitment. But it's not the it's not in the sort of deepest sense that we take from this passage. Now again, I'm I'm not hundred percent sure because I can't see how spirits work. But what the assumption around this passage is that when you do have sex with a person, there is something deeper. There is something. There's a connectedness that comes through that action. Um, whatever that thing is, again, I don't have that understanding. I, I'm not God. But there's something deeper that Paul is implying here. And so the point is quite clear at, at any rate that, again, your body belongs to Christ. And so if you go and connect it to a prostitute, then you are connected to somebody who is not Christ. You're doing something that is antithetical to Christ's sexual value. And so you are separating yourself from Christ. You are connecting yourself to somebody else. And at the very least, you're cutting yourself off from Christ and actually cutting off a member of Christ in doing that. So just that in of itself, whatever the spiritual bond is between two people who have sex, that... I don't know, but certainly the action of separating and tearing apart Christ's body, that is 100% clear and antithetical to, to what Paul has to say about sexuality. So then he says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. 
All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, I'm reading from the NIV again, and once again, there's no quotation marks here. Now, this would suggest that all of this is Paul's advice. So flee from sexual immorality. So Paul's advice when it comes to sex is don't even mess around with it. Don't think that you're strong enough to resist it. Just get the hell out of there. Don't even go to the parties, is Paul's advice. Don't even go anywhere near it, okay? That's my advice. Just run away from it. You're not strong enough. Clearly, you Corinthians are not strong enough for this. So just get the hell out of there. But then he says, all other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, is that Paul's advice or is he, again, quoting the Corinthians? Now, in the original Greek manuscripts, they don't have quotation marks, so we don't know. It could very well be that this is what the Corinthians are saying. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. So whatever we do is external to us. Sin is external to us. Overindulgence, sex, all these things are external to us. Again, what matters is the soul because they're still thinking that way. And so what does it really matter what we do? But Paul's correction to that is whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Uh, Even if this was Paul saying this, all other sins are external to you, murder or whatever, theft or whatever it might be, is external to you, but the point is still clear, sexual sin impacts you. The sexual sin is affects you immediately. Um, it's, you know, again, external sin, well, you can make the case that, well, actually it does affect yourself and others. So again, is this Paul, is this Corinthians? I would suggest it's probably the Corinthians who are saying this, that sin is just something external to me. So it doesn't actually impact my salvation. Paul says, ah, when it comes to this one, this is a big deal. And again, Paul's point, the clarification point is what's clear. The previous argument, take it or leave it, but the clarification, absolutely. If you sin sexually, you sin against your own body. That much is absolutely clear. And so then he finishes up in verse 19 with another one of these, do you not know? So he says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, Paul uses this temple metaphor a couple of ways. In a previous example, he uses it to describe the whole Christian community together. Everyone in relationship together is the temple of God, and God's love is expressed through that community. Here he's talking about the temple as the individual. And so you are the temple of Christ individually in that you bear the spirit. The spirit of God dwells in you, and so therefore you are a carrier of the presence of God. And so wherever you go, you carry God's presence. And so your body, therefore, is and should be an expression of that spirit that's in you. And that spirit that's in you would never, ever, ever go to a prostitute, would never, ever do the things that you're doing. And so you are in direct violation of the very spirit that you're supposed to be exemplifying. And so you've got to stop doing that because it's, it's a bad representation of the very thing that's in you. You're not demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit. One of you know, you, You're not demonstrating the purity that that Spirit should be bringing out from you. And so that has to stop. But again, he says this, you were bought at a price. What is he saying here? Well, Jesus bought you as a slave. And the language here is literally the language of slavery. It's the language that says of the slave market. How do you get slaves in the ancient world? You get out of the slave market, right? In the same way that today you get into a car yard, you would go down to the slave market. You go to the car yard, you look at a car, and there's a sign inside the window that describes the car, uh, what year model it is, um, what other details you might need to know about the state of the car. 
that's and so you you get all the information you need and then you make a decision if that's the car you want to buy same thing happens in a slave market you go to the slave market and it was an auction and the slave would be brought out up to a stage and they would be in a very thin garment that basically you could just go and inspect you could you know pop the bonnet and literally lift up the gown and say you know any physical marks that might turn me off buying this and there would be a sign around the slave that would say um, where they're from um, their approximate age, because no one really knows how old anybody is, but their approximate age, um, any any de- known defects, any known deformities, anything that might um, that need to be clear about in in the purchasing contract, and importantly, was this previously a previously owned slave or a slave or a brand new slave? Is this somebody who's never been in slavery? And there's there's advantages to both. Somebody who's been in slavery knows how to be a slave. Now, you have to retrain them, but, you know, it's like at least they've kind of got the basic concept that they're subhuman. The, on the other hand, uh, someone who's not been a slave before has to be broken in. That you can train them however you want to train them, but you still have to go through that process doing it. So those are the things you have to weigh up. Now, I, I know I'm saying, talking about this so in such a blasé way. That's how this world thinks. That's how the we're going to come back to this in a couple of weeks. We're going to talk about slavery in a couple of weeks and and sort of look at some of these these ideas. But that's the that's the impression Paul's saying here. Jesus came to the slave market and he bought us. Now again, we don't like the idea of being seen as slaves, but this is what the Christian message presents us as being. Christ died to purchase our our freedom, purchase our salvation. We are indebted to Him. We're in bondage to him. Now, if you don't like that, that's fine. Do it your own way. But you've got to understand that the Christian message is about Jesus having ownership over us and wanting and 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 expressing his kingdom through us. And so the picture that Paul is making here is that your bodies, every part of you belongs to Christ. Everything down to your toenails belongs to Christ. All of it is owned by him. And so whatever you do with your body has to be at his direction. He's your master. He's the one who has to direct you and 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 basically tell you what to do. That's that's how it works now in this Christian community. Now, again, for a woman who from birth has had that drilled into her that that's how you need to be to your husband, to your father, to your brother, to all of the men in your world. This is nothing new. This is their, this is how their thinking already works. Uh, the difference here is that when I come into this community, well, number one, I'm given opportunities for leadership. I'm given opportunities for ministry. I'm uh, I'm treated as an equal. I'm treated as a valuable member of the community. I'm I'm not forced to have abortions or, or any of these things. For the men, on the other hand, again, this is horrible. This is radical. This is so counterintuitive to everything that it means to be a man. And so it would make pretty good sense that 64% of the church are women and very often the men are only there because their wives have dragged them along to the community. So Paul has to change the thinking of the men and that's been the point of what we're talking about this week. But what about the practical elements then of marriage? How does this work now for these wives and for these husbands? What does this look like in the marriage context? And particularly, um, how does this impact on issues like divorce and and sex and, and all these other things? Well, that's what we're going to look at next week. 